Sometimes this world makes no sense to me. I'm torn between what others want and what is me. It seems a song is what the world demands, but how can I sing in this strange land? Until I die, I'll sing God's song, living in this Babylon, always looking for the shore of the world that I was made for. The world where the weak are finally strong and the righteous are known for righting wrongs. I want to see this earth start shaking, being impacted by a powerful generation that is finally waking up inside. And on the final day when I die, I want to hold my head up high. I want to look God himself in the eye and tell him that I tried. Our scripture reading this morning is Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 to 37. Please read aloud with me. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, Transit Church. Good to see everybody. You guys look good today. Beautiful day, hopefully a beautiful week. And uh, let's spend some beautiful time in the Word today. Let me pray, and then we'll get going. Father, we're grateful. Uh, we, we thank you for the, the gathering of your church. We thank you just for the ability to, to gather, for this building, uh, for this place. We thank you for Legacy Church, the, the, the ministry that we share this space with. And uh, it's been a blessing to us, and so we continue to honor you and thank you for that. We thank you for um, uh, just the words, your, your words, your true and faithful words to us that uh, the, the Bible says, give us life, and that draws us to you. This morning, Lord God, the, we're, we're reminded that lots is going on in the world, and sometimes the, the things that are going in the world can affect us, can affect our heart. And as we prayed earlier, Lord, we pray that you would help us to have a singular focus, uh, even in this moment, that we, uh, all of us individually, but we corporately, we, uh, we worship a God of, we have an audience of one. You are who our attention is on, and we pray that you would, even now, draw us near by your word and through our worship. Uh, Lord, uh, help us to see what you want us to see in our text today, and more than that, draw us to Jesus. And we pray that in his name, and everyone said, amen, and amen. So if you're here with us for the first time, we have been going through a series uh, in the book of Daniel, and the overarching theme is exile, exile, to to be displaced from a place that you have called home, not necessarily because you've volunteered to do that, but uh, you've been forced to do that. And so Daniel and his cohort of friends 
and really much of the nation of Israel have been displaced from Jerusalem, that city and much of their country completely destroyed, and they've been taken to Babylon, and here they are existing for some number of, of years. And as the video alluded to, if you heard this phrase, the, the, the question that we're answering during the series is, is, how can we flourish? How can we be faithful when we are in a strange land? Because the Bible tells us that we ourselves are exiles. If you're a Christian, then by faith, this world, although we are born and live and, and thrive here in the land of our birth, this place is not our home. God has more for us, an eternal home, where we will live and be with him and worship him forever, a new heavens and a new earth. As we come to, to Daniel 4, what we're dealing with today is uh, uh, we're, we're given uh, the last of a series of dealings of God and this king called Nebuchadnezzar. This is also the last of the cycle in which Daniel will, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar himself will be a key player. And I have to admit, I'm kind of happy. I, I'm actually tired of saying Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, it dawned on me this past week just how many times, just in like one sermon, to convey the text, you got to say Nebuchadnezzar. Have you all ever tried to say that like publicly 50 to 100 times in one sitting? So in, in my notes, I like every time I type it out in my notes, I would type it out wrong. I don't, I don't even know how to spell it. And so uh, if you look at my notes, it just says Neb. So if I mess up and I say Neb this morning, know that I'm talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Actually, I think VeggieTales gets it right. I don't know if, do, do parent, parents, do kids even watch VeggieTales still today? All right, so, you know, this is the, this is the ep well, last week was the episode of Rack, Shack, and Benny. And, and they nicknamed Nebuchadnezzar Nezzy. Neb, Neb, Nezzy K. Nezzer. Like, wouldn't that be great if the Bible just says, like, all right, Nezzy. Nezzy did this, Nezzy does that. All right, so, all right, Nebuchadnezzar. So history tells us that, that Nebuchadnezzar ruled about 43 years total uh, altogether in Babylon. And the belief is that this second dream occurred somewhere between his 30th and his 35th year of that reign. Daniel is probably between 40, 45, 50 years old, which means that the incident that we looked at last week in chapter 3 the, the incident of the Hebrew boys going through the fiery furnace um, has, is happening about 32 years after what we're going to, uh, 32 years before what we're going to read today. So a number of years have, have transpired. And really what that boils down to is, is these Hebrews, this nation of Israel has been in exile for a long time, 30 plus years, and they've got several more years to go, almost 40 more years to go. But, but what makes this chapter, chapter 4, unique in the book of Daniel is that the first half of the chapter is written in the first, uh, first, uh, um, first person singular from the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is, is writing, he's giving us his own account of, this, of his bizarre dealings with the, the, the God of the universe. He calls him God Most High, the Most High God. This is his testimony. This is this, is this pagan king that God has uh, allowed to be the, the leader of the biggest, baddest nation on earth, and what history says was, is one of the most um, prolific nations that have ever existed. 
This is his witness of the might and the power and of the kingdom of God. And he says it out of his own mouth. This is a kingdom over which God is, is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth. That's the testimony that Nebuchadnezzar has after his interaction with God and what we'll look at today. And that's important because the last time we saw Nebuchadnezzar, this would be 32 years ago, he was praising the works of God, God having rescued Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego from the fiery furnace. But the, the fact of the matter is Nebuchadnezzar himself was reluctant to make their God his God. He welcomed uh, the God of the Hebrews to, to come into Babylon, basically adding uh, the God most high, Yahweh, uh, along with all the other gods that the Babylonians celebrated. But Nebuchadnezzar, uh, in the end, his heart remained unchanged from even that incident. And so when we come to Daniel chapter 4, uh, what the text is doing is taking us on a journey of what it looks like for human pride to end in forced humility. And that, by the way, of a great fall. We're going to see unfold what it looks like for human pride to end in forced humility. And that, by the way, of a great fall. And so we got a lot of verses, a lot of texts. And so I'm going to boil this down to basically three points. Firstly, the sovereignty of God. Secondly, the sin of pride. And thirdly, our desperate need for redemption. So if you're taking notes, the sovereignty of God, the sin of pride, and our desperate need for redemption. We'll start with the sovereignty of God. Look at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the people, to all the nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. And so here in Daniel 4, we come to the climax of the theme of God's sovereignty. And we haven't talked really much about uh, God's sovereignty in the text yet, but what's being, um, not necessarily concluded here, but being highlighted is the idea that God is sovereign over nations, over individuals. And we've seen that really in every story that we've encountered so far in the first three chapters. And it's going to be like really illumined here in Daniel chapter 4. Um, Here's my experience. Sovereignty, it, sovereignty is a fighting word in the church, particularly when we link it to God. To say that God is sovereign, some people just like resist, even, not even knowing what that means. Um, sovereignty of God, it divides Christians theologically. We'll say, well, I'm, I'm not in that camp. I'm in, I'm in this camp. Because at the root of it, when we say that God is sovereign, is to say that he's in control, like, like of everything. That there's not... Uh, an atom in the world that can do what it does without God superintending over it. And that really is what it does mean for God to be sovereign. There's nothing outside of his authority and his power. And so to, to even suggest that God is sovereign for some suggests that he's made us robots and automatons and he's just puppeting us, right? And I mean, and, and Sometimes we, we fight against that. We fight even against the thought of that because we as humans have this thing inside of us that wants to be in control. It's my will, not your will. I, I do whatever I want to do. At least that's what we think is happening in our world. And I could, I mean, we could talk a whole year about the sovereignty of God. It's like one of my favorite topics to talk about. Let me give you a, a, a quote. 
uh, from one of my favorite theologians, the late R.C. Sproul. Here's what R.C. says. As sovereign, God is the supreme authority of heaven and earth. All other authority is lesser authority. Any other authority that exists in the universe is derivative. It's derived from and dependent upon God's authority. When you, when you think about God and his authority over his creation, think simply like author, okay? If I, were, if I wrote a book, you'd call me an author, I'd be proud of myself, right? Because, I mean, that's a pretty cool thing to write a book. And so as an author, I have creative license to do whatever I want with this thing that I've created. All these words put into form. I could self-publish it. I could go to a big name publisher and have them market it and sell it for me. I could just give the thing away. But as the creative author, I have the license to do whatever I want. God as the creator of heavens and earth, of the cosmos. There wouldn't be any, the Bible says there wouldn't be anything that exists if God didn't speak it into existence. That's, that's the kind of authority God has. And it's the same thing with, with power. The Bible tells us that power in the universe flows from the power of God, that it's derivative. We only have power because God gives it to us. I love the words of the psalmist, Psalm 62, power belongs to God. We make this error as, as humans. We tend to think that power is dualistic, that there's good, that there's good in the world, there's good power, and that God is over that, and there's evil power, and Satan is over that, and they're equal, and these two are always fighting against each other. As, as Christians, I don't know if you know this, but you don't believe in that. That, that, that there is no uh, greater power that's, that's fighting against God. God is, is omnipotent. He's all-powerful, okay? And so when it comes to this idea of, of sovereignty, we're saying that all authority, all power is, is representative of who God is, and any other authority and power that exists in the world is derivative from him. And this point has been reiterated in every chapter so far in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 1, we saw God's sovereignty over both nations and individuals and the way that he takes these Hebrew, these, these Israelites. And although they are stripped from their own country, what God does is in his wisdom and his sovereignty, he protects them such that even in slavery, even in captivity, he preserves their, their purity, that like they are able to say, no, we don't want to eat the king's food. We're going to eat uh, the, the food that comes from the earth, and God caused them to flourish in that. And this, it's God's sovereignty that did that. God is shown to be sovereign as he preserves his people in spiritual purity, even in a strange land. In Daniel chapter 2, God's sovereignty is shown in that Daniel alone is able to recite and interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. None of the other diviners and counselors are able to do that. Only Daniel is able to do that because God enabled him to do it. Last week, as we looked at Daniel chapter 3, God preserved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego through the fiery furnace while all the other nations are assembled. So uh, Nebuchadnezzar assembles all the, the known leaders from his own country and all those in the neighboring countries, and he brings them to so that they would witness the greatness of of himself, of Nebuchadnezzar. And what does God do in the midst of that? He thwarts Nebuchadnezzar's plan. How does he do it? He, he, he's mad because these three Hebrew boys won't bow down to him, and so he puts them in a fiery furnace, and God saves them through it. And only God's sovereignty could have done, could have done that. Thwarting Nebuchadnezzar's plan by not, not allowing, not making, or, or not 
um, causing them to, uh, to bow down to his idol. And now in Daniel chapter 4, what we're reading is the king's own confession of God's sovereignty. And the point of highlighting God's sovereignty only makes greater sense when we look at the backdrop by which God brings Nebuchadnezzar through a process of, of recognizing that sovereignty. And he does that through confession and repentance. We see God dealing with, with heart issues, the heart issues of Nebuchadnezzar, which are keeping him from, from even uh, recognizing who, who this God is. And so God brings him to the point of repentance where he would acknowledge that you are God most high. We see him pursuing uh, a soul until it deals with the sins that are blocking its ability to see who God is and then confess and repent. And then ultimately we see a soul captured by God, acknowledging repentance and confession and ultimately the lordship of God. And of course, this is what we're going to see in Nebuchadnezzar, but the lesson, of course, is that that's for us, too. Look down at verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid as I lay in my bed. The fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. It's, it's right to say Nebuchadnezzar, at this point, did not have a care in the world. I mean, he's like fat, dumb, and happy. Maybe not dumb. But he's definitely fat and happy. And in the Old Testament, fat actually is good. Okay, anytime you see the word fat, uh, in, all right, he's, he's, he's okay, right? He's king of all that he surveyed. Interestingly, this idea of, of Nebuchadnezzar being content in, in life with all that he had is the, is the place that God challenges him to get his attention one of the commentaries I read this week makes this point that contentedness and prosperity were clearly an obstacle in Nebuchadnezzar's life such that as long as he had it, he had no need for God. All that he had, all that he owned and possessed, even the people that he super, uh, that he was over, it was an obstacle to, to, to his heart, to, to his heart changing his heart even recognizing who God was. And this is often the case for us too, isn't it? As long as we're comfortable and at ease in life, it can shroud out our need for God. Like, I don't need God. I got a house. I got family. I got a nice car. I got finances. I'm doing okay. Why would I need to add God onto that? But more importantly, it can shroud out the need to examine our hearts and even allow God to, to change us. Discontent and disaster, especially when it's a personal comfort are very often the things that God uses to get our attention. Stuff like job issues, like relational stuff going on, or tension with your boss, tension with your peers, marital problems, health scares, money troubles, coronavirus, all that kind of stuff. God rocks our boat a little bit, and all of a sudden the calm waters of our life turn into this gigantic storm, and the normal action the normal reaction for most of us is like, I'm going to like freak out, right? I mean, like, what do we do with this kinds of stuff? We're, we're perplexed as to what we're supposed to do. But the big picture here is that these uh, interruptive experiences are ways that our sovereign God makes us take note of who we are. He helps us to see ourselves. But more importantly, here's what his, his goal is, is to help us see who he is. Look at verse 6. So I made a decree that all of the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. 
Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream. But they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the musicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and the interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree, was, the tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from man's and let a, a, a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Verse 18, this dream I Nebuchadnezzar saw and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make it known to me the interpretation, but you are able for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. All right, so a lot of verses, and obviously there's a lot there. I'm gonna, I'm gonna reduce it down to like two points and, and uh, train your eyes on verse six and seven firstly. In these verses, we see a failure of the magicians to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which leaves room for God to once again use Daniel in a very supernatural way. And that's, a, that's something that we need to pay attention to like all throughout Daniel. We've seen it uh, in, the, in the three stories that we've already read in the first three chapters. We're going we're to see it here that God is, um, he's not just introducing the supernatural, he's using it to bring about his causes. And, and we shouldn't think that because we live in a day that's thousands of years removed from this, that God does not superintend over his world with the supernatural. When, when, the, when the text says that God sent a watcher, and this watcher is the one that uh, sort of lops off the top of the tree. He's talking about some kind of an angelic being. We have this, we have this mistake of, making, uh, of thinking that angels are these nice, fat, little white, chubby things floating on, floating on clouds um, with arrows in their, in their arms to, to do stuff like that. But angels, the, the, the word watcher there um, has the connotation that's like, they're standing by, they're messengers, they're warriors waiting to do God's bidding. And in this case, uh, they're not just watching, they're going to exact some punishment, some judgment against Nebuchadnezzar because, of, because he's not heeding the warning of God. And so God is using the supernatural here and he uses it today. And then in the rest of the text here, verse 10 through 18, uh, I mean, the dream is actually pretty clear. 
It's, it's a pretty clear outline of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar is having. So the question that, that I actually have, and I've written it down, is like, well, why would Nebuchadnezzar even need Daniel to come in to interpret this dream when it seems like it's like, all right, can't you tell what God is telling you here in, the, in, the, in, the, in these words? And of course, the, the text doesn't give us the, the response of this is why Nebuchadnezzar calls Daniel in. So I've got some maybes here. The first is uh, maybe uh, uh, either Daniel, uh, Nebuchadnezzar wants Daniel to, to fill in the details. Maybe there uh, he thinks that uh, there's all right, I understand it. But maybe there's some things that Daniel could add to it that might help me out understand what, what God is doing in this particular case. Or maybe he's hoping that Daniel will give him an interpretation that's that, that takes away his fear and that's a little bit more favorable. So I, I, here's what I think. I think uh, Nebuchadnezzar knows this is not a nice, nice, nice dream he's had. Like, all right, so I think I sort of know what's going on. And God forbid if I'm the one that, that, that the top of myself is going to get chopped off. And I, he brings in Daniel, hoping that Daniel is going to tell him the very opposite. Give him some good news. There's also the reality is at this point, King Nebuchadnezzar trusts Daniel. And we've seen that in the last two stories that we've read. He has confidence in Daniel's God-given ability. In fact, he uses these words, the spirit of the holy gods is, is in Daniel. And so he trusts Daniel to not tell him what he wants to tell him, but to tell him the truth so that he at least knows what, uh, what's going on. But I think here's the, here's the main point that these, uh, these series of verses are trying to get across to us. It's that this dream is primarily designed to bring about Nebuchadnezzar's confession of God's sovereignty. This dream has a purpose, and that purpose is to make Nebuchadnezzar bow his knee to God. Here's what Sinclair Ferguson says. The purpose of this dream and decree was not left to Nebuchadnezzar's imagination. It was to teach men that God reigns, that he sets up and pulls down kingdoms, that his actions in history focuses on the work of humbling men in order that they may dispense with their foolish pride and acknowledge him as their God. I think Sinclair Ferguson was right. And that leads me to my second point, uh, the sin of pride. Look at verse 19. Continuing the story, Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream of the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. All right. So here, here's, here's what's happening. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar tells Daniel the dream. Daniel is immediately like appalled, horrified. Uh, like he is he's undone so much so that he leaves the room. That's what verse 19 is telling us. Daniel actually leaves the room because he's he's afraid for Nebuchadnezzar because of this dream. And I think this moment is a great testimony of, of Daniel's character, isn't it? I mean, he's, he's living as a captive in this strange land under a rule of a, of a usurper. I mean, this guy Nebuchadnezzar has destroyed his homeland and brought him to Babylon as a slave. But what's happening here is, even with that, Daniel seems to genuinely care about Nebuchadnezzar. There's, there's something in Daniel that cares for this pagan king. And I can't help but ask myself and perhaps suggest this to you. What if we treated those people who were like, who were around us that we didn't care for like that? What if we treated our neighbor who 
bothers us or there's something about them that we don't quite get along with or even don't, don't like about them? What if we, I don't know, if we treated them kindly, if we cared about them? What if, even definitely in politics, if, if we treated the people who were on the other side of the aisle of whatever side of the aisle you're on, what if we treated them with the care that we see Daniel treating Nebuchadnezzar here? Now, of course, the other half of this is, all right, so Daniel is, is horrified and undone by the, the dream and the interpretation. The, the other thing to be interested about is the way that Nebuchadnezzar reacts. Because Nebuchadnezzar uh, basically says to Daniel, like, like, well, Daniel, don't overreact. I, I think things are going to be okay. Like, it's not like the end of the world is coming. There's nothing to worry about. And I can just see Daniel as he's probably uh, dismissing himself from the king, turning around and says, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, I wish you could live forever. You just don't know. Like, God is going to undo your world here. Look what the rest of the text says. The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all, under whose beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reached, uh, reaches to the heavens and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump and its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation of King. It is a decree of the most high, which has come upon uh, my Lord, the King, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And so you have the dream and you have the interpretation. And, and here's the interpretation that you have this enormous tree represented by Nebuchadnezzar himself. And with that comes all the power and might that God has gifted him. And this is very similar to what we read in chapter two. You had this this statue of varying degrees of, of, uh, of metal. And the most important part about the statue was that the head was of gold. And so really it's God sort of giving the same picture to Nebuchadnezzar all over again so that he would get the point. And here's the picture. Nebuchadnezzar is the center and the pivotal point of the entire world. He's the leader of the biggest, baddest nation on the earth, and yet this, this cosmic tree representing Nebuchadnezzar and all of his greatness has a, back, a bad side. It has a dark side. And, and, and what's that dark side? It's that it needed to be brought low because of Nebuchadnezzar's sense of self-importance. It's like Daniel chapter 3. We see this picture of just how significant Nebuchadnezzar thought he was. In Daniel chapter 3, what did he do? He created this huge 90-foot statue that likely didn't look like him, but for sure it represented him and all that he superintended over. And the very picture of this gigantic tree with its branches spread throughout all the earth is a picture of Nebuchadnezzar's own, his, his self-estimation of himself. He's like, yeah, 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 I'm, I'm that good, I'm that bad. 
I think very highly of myself. And when you, when you peek at verse 17 and then verse 25 and 26, the, the, the watcher, this, this angel of God is, is cutting down that great tree. What we're witnessing, what we're being told is God is going to bring judgment. Nebuchadnezzar would not only lose his power and his glory, he would actually kind of sort of lose his very humanity. God is going to take him and remove him from, um, from all semblances of, of life as a human being. Nebuchadnezzar would be driven away from people. He's going to live like a wild animal until the point that Nebuchadnezzar was willing to acknowledge the sovereignty of God. It's as if God is saying, all right, Nebuchadnezzar, I put you here. You can give me glory now or you're going to suffer judgment and you can give me glory later. Which is it, which is it, you're going, which is it that you want to do? And I think here's just what it's a picture of this throughout the whole Bible. It's, it's no less than the confrontation that we see between good and evil played over and over again in our Bible that's being played between Nebuchadnezzar and the God of the universe. And I think it, it can be likened to, to many of the, the, the biblical contests that we've seen. This is like Moses against Pharaoh. It's, it's Elijah against Ahab. It's John the Baptist going against Herod the Great. It's the confrontation between Jesus and Pilate, or perhaps even Paul and King Agrippa. And when we read those stories, of course, it looks like oftentimes that man is not getting his, that man is getting his way over the forces of, of good. But really the way we're supposed to uh, interpret that is that God actually wins. God actually wins. And here's the caveat. Nebuchadnezzar's fate actually wasn't inevitable. That's what we should be reading into this text. Look at verse 26. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, verse 27, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. And so the purpose of this dream was to give Nebuchadnezzar a warning, a shot over the bow, if you will so that he might repent of his pride. Even though Nebuchadnezzar was going to be removed from power, God would allow the stump and the roots to remain so that they might restore themselves at some future time, meaning that there was hope that all would be restored. But of course, the next move is on Nebuchadnezzar. If Nebuchadnezzar humbled himself, the text says if he humbled himself, if he uh, confessed his sins, if he start practicing righteousness, if he showed um, mercy to those, all those nations of people that he had oppressed, acknowledging that God is the one responsible for his prosperity, then God would, uh, God would have no further need to humble him. God was demanding nothing less from Nebuchadnezzar than true repentance. And, and, and we have to recognize that in our own lives too, right? God, the story isn't just a good story with morals for Nebuchadnezzar's sake, really the same thing could be said about us. In, our, in his kindness, God backs us sometimes into the corner of the ring of our lives. He presses upon our hearts the likely outcome of our life story if we keep doing whatever it is that we're doing that doesn't align with him and his word. And sometimes God lets us see... Um, What's going on in us, namely our pride, is what we're talking about here. 
uh, by seeing other people fail. I have to tell you that, I mean, probably the scariest thing that I see often in my line of work as a pastor, uh, I've been a pastor for 12 years, church planner for eight years, and the hardest thing for me to, 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 to deal with is when I see uh, prominent, like, megachurch, state-level pastors, or any pastor, fall because of a moral or abusive or any kind of reason. Because it reminds me, Jeff, oh, for the sake of, you know, oh, there by the grace of God go I. I'm no different than these people. And we have to think that way about any and everyone that we see uh, that falls under the judgment of God and that we learn about it. God is giving us a message. Don't pick, don't prod, don't judge, for there by the grace of God could go you. Sometimes God helps us to see those kinds of things. Sometimes God just... um, shows us our own hearts. He shows us how depraved we are in our thinking, how vile our secret thoughts are, or perhaps subtly reminds us, you know what, you're already acting out in your sin. I'm just going to be gracious and not let you get caught yet in hopes that my kindness might bring you to repentance. And that's a kind thing for God to do, to know that we're sinning and yet make us aware of it and give us room, give us time to work things out. Have you seen God do that in your life? He's done it in mine. We have a faithful God. Sadly, God's warning through this dream to Nebuchadnezzar did not work. Look at verse 28. All this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, It's not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Uh, The the way that psychologists or psychiatrists would uh, interpret what's going on here is God touched Nebuchadnezzar's mind to cause him to go temporarily insane, such that he, um, he had no cognitive uh, recognition of who he formerly was. He, he lost all ability to, to remember the, the prominence of, uh, of who he was and the power that he had amassed. And in his own self, because of his depraved mind, he, he took himself out into the woods and he lived as an animal out in the wild. And then there, obviously there's, uh, there's psychiatric cases of, of people in our world who do just that, that they lose their sanity and they, uh, they're comfortable living out, into, uh, living out in a, a wilderness kind of perspective. All right, so that, there's a reality to that. That's not what the text is, is wanting us to focus, like Nebuchadnezzar's craziness. Here's where we're supposed to focus. We're supposed to notice that God does what he promises in his word. That's the, that's the lesson here, folks. God, what, what he promises 
he's going to do. Here's what the proverb, the wisdom of Proverbs says this. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. So here, here's what pride does. It causes us to think too much of ourselves. And like Nebuchadnezzar, we, we stand up on the roof of our lives and we look out and we survey out and down. And we see all that we and by our, by our hands have made. We marvel at the work of our hands. We give glory to ourselves at the center of everything that's good and right. And when we do that, we can't help but regulate God to second place in, our, in, like, in the things of our lives. Lord, Lord, I did this and I'll acknowledge you, but I'm going to acknowledge myself first. And, and you helped a little bit. Pride, that's what that is. Pride is smarter, better looking, more creative. It does everything faster. It's more skillful than anything else around it. And pride is never satisfied with what it's accomplished. Because pride wants to win. And so when you're a prideful person, you're always looking out at other people and other things, and you're sizing it up. Like, where do I place myself with what I'm seeing these other people doing? And you will, you will keep going and keep doing until you have outpaced and outdone everything around you. And that's why the essence of pride is me, myself, and I. I'm fixed on my performance. Of course, this leaves no room for me to look upwards toward God who enabled me to do all the things that I'm doing. And that leads us to our, our last point, our desperate need for redemption. Look at verse 34. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures for, from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. These, these last verses show us, what up, carpet? what repentance and redemption can look like. Not should like, it's, it's what it can look like. And, and it begins when Nebuchadnezzar took his eyes off of himself, like he's insane, so he doesn't even remember his greatness. But in this moment, can you imagine, like I was high and God has brought me low. I mean, in those moments, what do we think about? Like, woe is me, Lord, come on, lift me up. He took his eyes off of that, of, of the, the way that God had dis disastrously judged him, and he looked up to the God of heaven. He came to his right senses. He lifted his eyes up to heaven. He decides to look up at God. And so let me give you one point and one lesson. And, and I'm going to focus on verse 33, 34 and 35. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar ends, the, ends this narrative the same way he begins. Did you notice that it started with a doxology? Doxology being uh, an anthem or... Uh, it's our, our adoration, the, the, the praise, the words of praise that we would give to, to God. And so he starts off that way. Then he tells us the, the testimony of his story, of his encounter with God. And he ends that way as he lends praise to God. And, and, and here's his testimony. He says, all right, God, I get it. You're sovereign. God is Lord. 
heaven rules from eternity to eternity. You are God. There's nothing that existed above you. Your kingdom is a, is a kingdom above all kingdoms, and your kingdom will last forever. Those are, those are the words from this pagan king's own mouth that God had brought him to this point where he comes to, he recognizes the Godship of God. But notice how far God had to bring him for him to get to that point. So the question, of course, is, is, is Nebuchadnezzar converted here? Like, is, is he finally a person of faith? Um, we don't see that necessarily. It, the text doesn't tell us. And I would, you know, from what I've read, uh, there are people that I trust who are way smarter than I that sit on both sides of that camp. And so I don't think we're supposed to know. But, but here's what's evident. And I think this point rings out. It's this. God opposes the proud, but he, give, he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. That's what we're seeing transpire between Nebuchadnezzar. The, 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 this is, this is a, a verse that's replete in the Proverbs. God resists the proud. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I'm reading you uh, the version from James chapter 4, verse 6. This is Jesus' little brother, the apostle James, who's, who's telling us this. But notice the words that I left out. You see that? The first four words, first five words, say that with me, but he gives more grace. Don't you love that? But he gives more grace. My first thought is, I mean, we can't outgrace the love of God. Like, we, we cannot outdo God. It also says that, like, God's got us. If you have professed faith in Jesus, then he's got you. And you're not out of the reach of his graceful hand. And if, if the great and mighty persecutor of Israel, the destroyer of Jerusalem, can be humbled by God's grace and made to confess God's mercy, if that can happen to someone like Nebuchadnezzar, there's nobody on the face of the earth that's outside of God's reach. Not even you. But, but here's the thing to note. That grace was extended only after Nebuchadnezzar repents. God wants all, all of us to come to a place where we are confessing our sins and repenting. That, that's the prerequisite to come to Jesus. Namely, namely, here repents of his own pride. So Nebuchadnezzar is recognizing that he overestimated his own importance and significance and independence. And so he repents. Oh, that's the point. Here's the lesson and we'll be done. Here's a true saying. I'm taking this from the late theologian John Stott. Pride is our greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. C.J. Mahaney in his book, Humility, True Greatness, says this. He says, humility is a uniquely Christian virtue. One of the reasons we should all believe the Bible is true is that you and me would never have invented a humble God. And ain't that the truth? Here's the reality of the gospel. The gospel that you and I believe is that it's an intrinsically humbling message. The only way you and I can enter God's kingdom is to be humble. We come to our hands empty. Like we can't, we can't earn our way to God, even though we, we try to and want to. We come to our hands empty, lifting our eyes to heaven and confessing our great need for a Savior. A Savior that Paul says in Philippians, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Tell you what, Transit Church, we're going we're gonna to look at this five weeks from now at Easter. 
But, but let's pretend like Easter's today. There's, there's no more humbling experience for the God of the universe than to die. And here's the point about Jesus, the important point. Jesus dies not for his own pride. Here's Paul's confession. He was the most humble person on the planet. Jesus didn't die for his own pride. He died to redeem us of our pride. He was made low, lower than the angels, to redeem a people to himself. And of course, that happens on the cross. The humble king Jesus dies in your place for your sin. Here's the good, here's the good news. He doesn't stay there. What happens at Easter? He resurrects. He ascends. And now the Bible tells us that Jesus is exalted at the right hand of God the Father. He's ruling, he's reigning, he's sovereign over all, having accomplished our salvation. He's the one that we get to look up to. Isn't that awesome? He's the one that we get to, like, I'm wallowing in my sin. I see God's judgment on me. And he says, Jeff, look up, look up to heaven. And guess who we get to look up to? We get to look up to the, the, the humble Jesus. Jesus deserves our praise. And, and, and that's why God gives us gives grace to the humble. That's why the humble are exalted, not because humility is worth bragging about, but because the humble fix their eyes on Jesus, the once humble and now glorified Lord at all. Let me exhort you, and then I'll close with this. Some of you in this room right now need to take your eyes off yourself and your accomplishments. You're prideful, and at some point, God is going to resist your pride. Others of you need to take your eyes off of your failures and your disasters. Some of you need to stop comparing yourself with other people. All of us instead need to repent. Turn from our sin. Turn from our pride. When we turn from those things, we turn to Jesus. And we lift up our eyes to heaven. And we worship King Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. May it not return void. Would you do what you intend to do? with it through our minds to our hearts that it would leak out to our hands and we would actually act this this stuff out lord this pride stuff is a is a hard thing for us to overcome sometimes we don't even see it so god by your grace and your kindness would you would you illumine those areas in our lives where we are boasting of the the works of our own hands where who we are and what we're able to do is is the thing that we're worshiping instead of uh, looking up and worshiping you. God, help us to see Jesus, our humble King, who in our place for our sin died humbly for our pride. And as we turn from our sin to you, Lord God, lift us up with him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.